You're listening to Mental Selling, the sales performance podcast, a show from Integrity Solutions. This is a podcast for passionate leaders in sales and customer service who are driven by purpose, not just a paycheck. People who want to create broader and deeper connections with customers and their teams by building trust and mastering the critical mental and emotional sides of sales. You're about to hear a conversation from sales leaders and industry experts about what it takes to translate sales knowledge into sales performance, how to change the sales conversation by putting the focus on building relationships and adding value, removing the blockers that keep salespeople from reaching their potential, creating an inspiring learning environment and coaching culture, and ultimately increasing sales achievement and improving customer loyalty. Ready to rise up to the top of your game? Let's get right into the show. We're all the sum of our decisions. Your success as a salesperson is tied to how efficient and productive you are with your time. And like everything else in sales, it's a choice of how you go about managing the moments that are available to you. Is this the year that you take tangible steps toward the great things you want for yourself and the heights of success that you're capable of? Our guest today on Mental Selling is Matthew Dix. He's an author, most recently of the book, Someday is Today, a daily blogger, which believe me is no small feat in itself, marketing and communications consultant, public speaker and storytelling coach, columnist and teacher. So Matthew, is that all you do? Is that it? (laughs) There's other things, but we, you know, we could leave it at that. My my wife would tell you to continue the list because she's keenly aware of all the things I do. We'll leave it at that right now. I guess that's a pretty good start. So thanks, Matthew, so much for joining me today on, on Mental Selling. This is, uh, it's great to have you with us. It's my pleasure. Let's jump right in. This is a great topic for discussion, I think, especially as people kick into gear for the new year. And while it's certainly not unique to them, a lot of salespeople struggle with time management and prioritizing high value things that they know they should be doing. A salesperson can be, they can be pulled in a ton of directions every day and they're often not in control of their own calendar. You have this advice about thinking about things in terms of minutes and and tiny decisions. And I I wonder if you could elaborate on that. It's odd that so often people sort of look at a task and they just assume that everything should sort of be chunked into 15 or 30 minutes or even an hour, you know? So ultimately what happens in our lives is if we chunk everything into, let's say, 30 minute blocks, we end up with all of these sort of stray minutes just sort of lingering around. You know, we finish something and, you know, we look and our next meeting is 12 minutes away. And then what do you do for those 12 minutes? So often what we do is nothing. We look at our phone is the most common thing that we do, which is the worst thing we can do for ourselves because we never feel good after looking at our phone. And I'm sort of obsessed with the idea that every minute counts. And so I have like a list of all the things I can possibly accomplish in 10 minutes. And so as soon as I find myself with a 10 minute block, I will immediately begin doing that thing. You know, even for this interview, I sat down at the computer, I looked at the time, I knew I had four minutes before I had to click the button to see you. And so in those four minutes, I pulled up a book I'm working on. And I said to myself, I'll read the last couple paragraphs I wrote and see if I can edit them for the next four minutes before I click it where I think most people, most people that I know, don't use those minutes. And so when people ask me how I manage to get as much done as I do, I tell them that I just, I make sure that I do all that work in the cracks of my life that oftentimes just go wasted by other people. 
when I was thinking about this, I, th- I think about it in context of reading and, and it's something I'm constantly working on myself, but I always need, I always seem to need the perfect situation and atmosphere to sit down to read. I need enough time to read a full chapter or I won't start. So I do a lot of reading on airplanes because you have big chunks of time then. And, but then as a result, I'll, I'll end up reading about six books a year, which is, which is nice, but I always want it to be more. Whereas my wife does what you do and can read in four or five, 10 minute increments at a time while doing other things. And so what happens? She reads 75 to 80 books a year. Yeah. A lot of times people feel that chores or tasks need to be completed all at once. And as a result, they don't get done. So like my wife has a walk-in closet and for like three years, it was a disaster and it didn't bother me because I closed the door. I don't have to look at it. You know, and one day she said, well, I'm going to have to take a whole Saturday just to clean out the closet. And I said, or you could pick up one item every day for the next 100 days and also achieve the same result and not give up a Saturday. And ultimately she gave up the Saturday. And I just thought it's crazy. You know, it's incrementalism. It's the belief that you can do tasks and smaller amounts in the little bits of time you have. And ultimately that will be done and you'll have more to show for it. And especially when you can't in nice, neat ways that everybody would like to be able to do where you can't segment out your own day and calendar on a, you know, a full hour here, 45 minutes there. It is often those I've got a meeting that just ended and I've got 11 minutes until the next one starts. What can I do? And like you said, are you going to waste time scrolling through your phone for something unproductive or, or do what you're saying? Yeah. I've written six novels now where I've published six novels and if I ever like took a analysis of sort of the average writing time that I spent on those novels, you know, I probably sat down for an average of 15 minutes at a time to work on that book. But when I talk to writers who want to write novels, they tell me, well, I can only work between 10 and two. I need to be at a Starbucks. I need to have a latte. And I always remind them that like during World War One, there were men in trenches wearing gas masks. Bombs were exploding over their head. And they were scribbling on pieces of paper, hoping that if they survive this battle, it might become something and they could do something with it someday. And so the need for that perfection of situation, you know, that that ideal amount of time, it's just nonsense. You know, what it ultimately leads to is regret, because eventually you find yourself in a place looking back and thinking, my God, what what could I have done if I had been a little smarter about my time? So what are some of the the negative messages that people tend to play in their mind or or maybe even that they hear from others externally when it comes to their time and, and being more efficient with their time? A big part of time management is sort of soul management, like taking care of yourself, you know, taking care of your mindset, taking care of how you're feeling about things. So like the pursuit of perfection, for example, is a fool's errand. And yet people do it all the time. And so often when people are sort of engaged in a process, they judge sort of how they did based upon the outcome. And so often in our lives, the outcomes are utterly beyond our control. You know, I can write what I think is a fantastic book. And no, if no editor wants it, it doesn't mean I didn't write a fantastic book or that I didn't engage in a worthwhile process. So I, I tell people, Don't focus on sort of like the thing that's going to come at the end. Focus on all of those steps. Make each step on the way to the end the best possible step you can make. And if at the end, in your example, you don't make the sale, but you've made every attempt 
to make the sale as honest and as good and as hard as you possibly could, then you just move on to the next one. And you don't say anything negative about yourself because we just have to accept the fact that we don't get to choose the outcomes. Very, very rarely do we actually have a say over what the end point will be or the end product will be, but we have an enormous amount to say about how we're getting there. And that's what we have to focus on. If you're a salesperson or a sales leader and you're in, in your role, you're having to, you know, you've got two hours that you want to use to reach out to 15 people about different things. You can get overwhelmed by trying to find that two hour chunk. But like you said, you can take six, eight minutes and maybe reach out to one or two people in those times in between meetings or as you're on your way through the airport to a flight, whatever the case may be, right? Yeah. And they probably only need two, two minutes from you or they only want two minutes, right? A two minute phone call from, you know, your manager who calls to say, Hey, here's the thing you did great. And here's a couple things to work on. And you know, that call ends in 200 seconds. That's a fantastic phone call. That's exactly what people want in this world. Yeah. We talk a lot about that, about, um, about coaching and, and sales leaders needing to coach their teams more. And one of the reasons that they don't is that they feel it needs to be some formal hour long scheduled thing. And we talk about how coaching moments exist every day. It can be a two minute phone call. It could be a text. It could be an email or voicemail, that sort of thing. And, and all those things, like you, like you're saying, they, they add up and over time they, they, you know, they're, the sum is greater than the individual parts, right? Yeah, I agree. And you know, that idea of positive feedback, it's so strange in the corporate world. I was actually speaking to a sales guy. He was getting ready to be part of a keynote address for a big company, a fortune 100 company. And I listened to his 12 minute talk. And the first thing I did was started to tell him the good things that he did. And he tried to stop me. He said, I don't need you to cushion the blow. Just tell me what I did wrong and what I need to do better. And I've had to explain to so many people in the corporate world, when I give you positive feedback, what I'm trying to do is reinforce the things that you did well. Oftentimes we do things well without even an awareness that we're doing it. So I'm trying to build consistency in terms of the things that you're already good at that you may not even be aware of. So I had to tell him, I'm not trying to protect your, your ego by offering you positive feedback. I'm trying to keep you doing the thing you're doing well. And I spoke to the vice president of a, of marketing at a very large company that you interact with every day. And I get, did the same thing with her. I gave her all this positive feedback. She tried to push back. I explained why. And I got an email two days later and it said, I am going to be dealing with my people in an entirely new way based upon the conversation that we had two days ago. It's never occurred to me that positive feedback is a means of changing behavior or reinforcing good behavior. So those little calls, that 180 seconds that you call somebody and just tell them something that they're doing well, that is enormously valuable. It's a huge aspect of coaching. It's a big area where I think sales leaders, they do mistake um, feedback for having to be negative or critical. And like you said, a lot of people, they they do a lot of the right things, but they don't really realize it. And, it, and that hasn't been ingrained in them either. So they, they, they need that that feedback too. So no, that, that's really, really um, very important. So one, as I was preparing for our discussion, one of the blog posts, and again, you, you write a blog every day, which I have to admire you for doing That's That is not easy. Um, but one of your blog posts I read ahead of the discussion was titled procrastination isn't what you think. And, and the crux of it was that procrastination is not about laziness, but it's about two other things. Can you talk about those? Cause I think those are really important for 
especially for our, our audience and, and the salesperson's mindset? I guess the first one I'll say, because it's the easiest one to fix, is sort of a lack of preparation. Essentially, if you don't have an organized life, if you don't have you know, a system by which you can get things done in an efficient way, it is easy to procrastinate. If you're looking at a desk that is piled high with things to do and you can't find what you need, it is exceedingly likely that you're going to procrastinate because a, a million undone tasks is going to prevent you from getting to the one you want to get done. The other problem, though, the one that's a little harder to shake is the fear of failure. Most of the time, I think we're procrastinating because the thing we have to do is hard and the possibility of not doing well or failing or looking foolish in front of someone else is real. And so we just put it off and oftentimes we'll do some smaller, easier, less risky tasks. We'll fill our lives with the nonsense rather than tackling the thing that will actually usually lead to to better outcomes. You know, you often don't get to a better outcome without a lot of failure along the way. But procrastination prevents us from getting there. Continuing on the the procrastination thought, what about the things that people they have avoidance behaviors about? And for a lot of salespeople that manifests itself in prospecting, right? Which is really at the the core of what being a good salesperson is all about. But it's something that a lot of salespeople will make a litany of excuses to avoid and it comes back to bite them six to 12 months later. How can a salesperson couple things that they might avoid doing with things that maybe are an easier part of their routine? Yeah, I like the use of the word coupling, you know, which I think is a really smart word. Oftentimes when we attach things, you know, it's more likely that we're going to do them. So, you know, my famous example is I floss in the shower, you know, like 15 years ago, my dentist made me finally understand why flossing was important. Actually through a good story, I, I was like, wow, that actually is a thing. And I realized I'm never going to floss unless I put myself in a position to want to floss or to make it as easy as possible. So putting it in the shower meant when I'm done showering, I can spend an extra 20 seconds under that warm water and floss. And so I haven't missed a day of flossing in 15 years as a result. So if we think about that, you know, I've had to make sort of difficult phone calls to parents about their kids, you know, as a, as an elementary school teacher. And what I'm famous for doing is I go to the golf course, to the driving range, and I'll sit on this red bench at the driving range with my club in my hand and the balls, you know, ready to go. And I pick up the phone, I make the phone call, I have the conversation I need to have, I hang it up. And then I walk over and I start hitting golf balls. And when we do that, you know, another really strange example, but true, my father and I don't really have a relationship. He sort of abandoned us when I was little. Occasionally he'll write to me. And when he wrote that first letter to me after years, I held it for a long time. And then one day my wife and I went to a movie. And while we were sitting in the movie theater and the trailers were starting to come on, I took the letter out and my wife said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to open the letter now because I'm about to watch a movie. And so I'll read the letter. And if I don't like what it says inside, I'm going to have a two hour movie to sort of wash it away. It made it possible for me to do a really hard thing, which is read a letter from my father who I hadn't heard from in 12 years. So when we find ways to sort of make those hard things a little easier by placing them somewhere that we feel better, or we can reward ourselves or you know, it's just a simpler task because of the way we've constructed it. I think that's that can be really helpful. Another thing that that I've seen you speak about is that I wanted to get into is, so how does being more productive, how does it fuel your energy and 
sense of purpose. Some people might think that, well, if I'm that much more efficient and constantly using every minute of my time, I'm going to be utterly exhausted and spent. But it seems like what you're saying is that the opposite is sort of true. Yeah. Well, I'll also say that when I talk about productivity, people often think work. So for me, it's consulting and writing and teaching. But for me, productivity also means time spent with my kids, for example. So if my son wants to play a game, you know, a game of cards or something, and he's 10, I make sure everything gets put aside for that. You know, I, I just, and if it's 10 minutes or if it's five minutes or if it's three minutes and my son wants to play and all I've got is three minutes, I will find something to do in those three minutes. So productivity comes in a lot of forms. I'm working with a client right now who wants a garden in her backyard and it's taken her 10 years to start this garden in her backyard. And it's just a matter of procrastination. It was hard to get started. And so it doesn't look very productive to have a small flower garden in the backyard, but for her, it's an enormous leap. So, you know, we have to make time for things that matter. And sometimes that's work. And sometimes we're making sure that rather than looking at our phone, we're spending time with friends or loved ones or doing those things that we really have always wanted to do that we've been putting off thinking that we'll get to it someday. Yeah. Part of the objective of, of being more productive is so that you have more of that personal time, right? It's that idea of the more productive you are, the less that you're going to let your professional life infringe on your, your personal life because you don't need to. Right. It's an odd way to think that you should be productive and efficient while spending time with your kids. But I do believe that. I do believe that I want to make the most of every minute I have with my kids because I know they're growing up and it's hard enough to get my 13-year-old daughter to come out of her room and hang out with me. So when she does it, I'm not going to be looking at my phone and I'm not going to be dithering away seven minutes while we're sort of trying to get into sync. I'm going to try to get to it as quickly as I can and do something that will be memorable and meaningful. And I just think we dither so much time away in that way. I always ask my elementary school students, I say, how often do your parents look at the phone when you want them looking at you? And I cannot tell you how many hands go up in the room. Kids just feel ignored these days because we love our kids. And yet when they're in our presence, we're often not present for them. And, th and I think that's for all of the things that we're talking about. Yeah. And we can all be guilty of that, I think sometimes, but it's like you said, part of the message is those meaningful moments, whether it's professionally or personally, they don't have to be 90 minutes long. You can have a meaningful interaction in three to four minutes. Yeah. A guy told me in the lobby of a synagogue last night, I'm not Jewish, but my wife is, and I was doing this thing at the synagogue. He told me, you're the mo most Jewish Gentile in our community. And it meant an enormous amount to me. He spent 10 seconds with me and I will never forget it. And so for his willingness to stop and tell me something for 10 seconds, left a mark that will last a lifetime. And we can do that if we just, you know, if we make those good decisions. And being productive with our time is all about prioritization, right? And in the the book you wrote called Some Days Today, you talk about something called the 100-year-old plan. Can you explain that concept and talk about how maybe it can be applied for a salesperson taking action on their longer-term goals and also building on what we were talking about earlier, how it can help them take better control over their professional life and the choices that they're making? Yeah. It's the understanding that we are very unreliable when making decisions in the moment. You know, if I was to choose what to do today, I would have played golf and eaten cheeseburgers. And that's what I would do every day if I was choosing in the moment, you know? So 
what I learned over time and through some, you know, difficult experiences was that rather than relying on myself to make decisions, whenever I sort of have a decision to make, almost any decision, I've trained myself to not think about today, but think about the hundred-year-old version of myself, the one that theoretically is lying on his deathbed. He's finally found time to watch a little TV and he's looking back over, over his life. You know, I ask him, all right, I have 30 minutes. How should I spend this 30 minutes? Or someone has asked me to do this thing. Should I say yes to it? And that hundred-year-old version of me always says, do the thing that means something in these 30 minutes or say yes to that opportunity because pretty soon no one's going to be asking you to say yes anymore. And so if you're thinking about it in terms of sales, like you have to understand that there is a, maybe not a hundred year old version of yourself, but a version of yourself a year away who wants you to be doing the work today so that future self will benefit from it. It's what I tell my son all the time. I say, take care of your future self. I say, when you take your clothes off, Charlie, turn them right side out so that when you eventually have to fold them, you're not like having to turn them around while you're folding them. Take care of your future self. So the idea that we have to do things today, acknowledging that there is a version of us in the future that wants us to do the right thing. And it's also something that you, something else that you've written about is the idea of, of thinking about in context of return on investment, right? So, you know, return on investment to help us think about choices that we make with our time and, and, and productivity? The thing I fear the most for myself and actually for other people is regret. There was a moment in my life when I was certain that I was about to die. I was involved in a horrific crime and there was a gun to my head. And, you know, the man had told me he was getting ready to pull the trigger. And I was absolutely certain I was in the last moments of my life. And the astounding thing about that moment for me was that I wasn't afraid or angry or sad. The only feeling I became consumed with was regret for the things I hadn't done and the time I had wasted. Now, thankfully, I was 22 at the time. So I, was, I had time to sort of turn my life around. But if you talk to hospice workers, they'll tell you that in the last days of people's lives, the things they talk about the most are the missed opportunities and the time that was wasted and the relationships they didn't invest in enough and the business opportunity that came up when they were 35 and it scared them. So they turned away from it. All of that is a terrible way to sort of be at the end of your life, feeling that regret. That's why we have to think about that end of life self and do everything we can so that when you finally, you know, leave this mortal coil, you're not looking back and thinking about all the time you wasted and all the opportunities you didn't take and all the procrastinating that you did. And instead you feel good about the time you spent here. Another idea that I like of yours is, the don't do something and see what happens idea. <laughs> yeah. My colleagues aren't, uh, aren't fans of it sometimes because, you know, they watch me do it. And then <laughs> and meanwhile, they're doing the thing and it makes them nuts. But so often in life, we just have to, we have to take a look and say, what would happen if I didn't actually do this thing? Would anything change as a result? We, we do a lot of stuff that we don't need to do. The simplest example, I don't know if I wrote this in the book, but the, every week I have to fill out this form as a teacher. And on the top of the form, it asks for my name, and then it says my position, which is teacher. And every single time I've filled out that form for 24 years, the word I've written up there is upright. My position is upright. And I've never heard anyone tell me that it was filled out incorrectly in 24 years, which means that's a needless task. Nobody cares about that field on that form. And yet every week, 
people write teacher or paraprofessional, I get a little joy out of writing upright. But it, what it really says to me is I don't have to fill that form out anymore, or at least that part of the form. And so often there's paperwork that I just don't do and I see what happens. And, you know, this weekend I was at a yoga retreat center teaching a storytelling workshop and I chose not to park where I was supposed to park. I parked illegally at the yoga retreat center. And, you know, my partner in crime, Jenny, she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're at a yoga retreat center. It's not like they have cops around here. I'll park here and see what happens. It's not, it's not interfering with anyone. It's not putting my car in any danger. It's just a spot that they've decided isn't a spot. I'm going to choose to make it a spot and we'll see what happens. And the whole weekend, nobody touched my car. No one bothered me. I was right next to the door. I saved myself enormous amounts of time. So oftentimes when we don't do something that we're supposed to do, the outcome is someone says, hey, you needed to do that thing. And then you say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that. I'll do it next time. And that's the end of it. There's very rarely a consequence to not doing something that you're supposed to do other than you have to apologize and fix it the next time. So I encourage people to just sort of like, look at what you're asking people to do. Look what you're being asked to do and see if you can stop doing some of those things. It's nice when you can eliminate a chore from your life. Yeah, we, we all have those things where, it, and sometimes doing them can feel good, right? Because you get to check a box, even if that little box is is meaningless, right? You check it off your off your list. But I part of the reason I wanted to ask this is because I feel like sales leaders should think about it as well. Because as a manager, what are you asking your people to do that's actually not essential and is just that sort of gap filler, time filler, whatever you know that might be? And about meetings too, right? You talked about how eliminating meetings can have a better consequence than, than what's anticipated, right? Yeah. Well, I always tell people, if you schedule an hour for a meeting and the meeting goes an hour, you have failed, right? And what is the probability that you have exactly 60, 60 minutes of content anyway? Like you're just filling at that point. So, you know, eliminating meetings, the pandemic did this beautifully in education because suddenly we were at home and they eliminated all these meetings and then they tried to bring them back. And we all said, like, why? We were fine without them. And so a lot of meetings went away. Khan Academy, an educational um, company that you can sort of take classes online, they have a policy in their company that anytime you're going to have a meeting that is 30 minutes or less, make it a video. And then we'll post it and it will be there in perpetuity. And so unless your meeting really requires a bunch of people to come together for a long time for a hard decision, just make it a video and we can watch it for the next 10 years if we want. And that has eliminated a lot of needlessness. And it can become more valuable, right? Because you're going back to something that maybe is important and making it available for people that they weren't there live or or maybe there are people that aren't even in the organization yet that can use it. Right. You also force people to make the video. So oftentimes what they've discovered is when you tell someone, no, you have to make a video instead of like telling everyone to come to the conference room, they just decide, oh, it wasn't that important anyway, which is probably what it was all along, right? If you create a barrier, then people will go, oh, forget it. We don't need to do it. And, and they find there's no loss in it. You know, if you're leading a sales team, you should ask yourself, what is the most important thing that my people can be doing right now? And then you should relentlessly try to remove every barrier to them doing that thing. It should be your number one priority is I'm going to make sure that the only thing they do is the things that are going to make them and me money and everything else 
goes away, gets streamlined, gets delegated to someone else, or or you just stop doing it. Yeah, delegation's a big part of it. And that wasn't didn't you have something about meetings on Friday afternoons and illuminating those? Yeah. There's a couple companies out there, big ones, that have sort of like kept Fridays meaningless so that people can just get some damn work done. And then a lot of companies, I know that I know of a company that only allows for meetings on Wednesdays. So every meeting you're going to have is going to be on a Wednesday, which means those meetings are hyper efficient. Because if you've only got eight hours to meet with your people and you've got a whole bunch of people, you're not going to waste time. There's going to be no, there's going to be no ice breaking. There's, you know, all the nonsense that sort of wastes our meetings. You're not going to schedule people into the meeting that don't actually need to be there. All of that stuff will go away. You know, a lot of salespeople will think the same way, but I, I think in my daily and weekly schedule, the days that I'm most productive are days that I don't have any meeting schedule. Right. Yeah. Cause that's work. Yeah. <laughs> that's time <laughs> to actually accomplish the things you're trying to accomplish. The other product, I don't want to call it a productivity hack, but just something that stood out to me that I really loved that you wrote about is declaring email bankruptcy. I think it's a phenomenal idea for people and probably a lot of people out there need to do it. Can you talk about that? It, that procrastination issue comes into play here a little bit because if you have an email box with 9,000 emails, you, you don't really have any emails at that point, right? There's a saying that in football that if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have a quarterback. If you have 9,000 emails, you don't actually have any email because you've made it untenable, like it's it's useless to you. So email bankruptcy is just the idea that I am going to delete my entire inbox right now. And anything that was important that I did not respond to will be sent to me again because that's how the world works. And most of it was irrelevant, never needed to be responded to, and you are freeing yourself from those tasks. You can send an email to your whole mailing list saying, today I'm declaring email bankruptcy please resend anything you're waiting for me. But I actually think the better way to do it is to just do it and wait. You know, don't even invite people to hit you again with an email that if it's important, they will circle back around. And if they circle back around and say, hey, what happened? You can just say, you know what? It must have slipped in between the cracks. I'm sorry. Maybe I got caught in a spam folder. You're right. I missed it. I'll take care of it right now. It's just a quick apology and then you do it and you're done. So Get yourself to a manageable level of email. And one of the things I always tell people to do is to use the snooze function in email so that, you know, if I bribe, I just bought some Broadway tickets for February, the tickets come into my email. I'm not going to let them sit in my inbox for three months. So I snooze them till the day I need them. We just went to a show, my wife and I in New York City, and she said, where's the tickets? And I said, they'll show up. And we were literally walking towards the door and my phone went ding and they arrived at that moment and I was like, you're ridiculous. And I said, no, I'm not because I didn't have to look at it until the moment I needed it. And so that snooze function, it takes a second and it sends things to the places you need it, to the time you need it rather than staring at it. That's really good. I've never used the snooze function in email. That's a really good one. Almost every email I receive gets snoozed to some point. And if you're using a good email system, like you can just snooze it to tomorrow. So like I look, I get an email arrives and I go, I will not be able to deal with this today. I'll snooze it to tomorrow. I'm meeting with a company in Princeton on Wednesday. They have sent me like 19 emails about the whole visit and what they want from me. All of those emails are going to arrive to me on Tuesday night at six o'clock because that's when I actually want to deal with them. Otherwise, I'm not looking at them. This idea of declaring email bankruptcy, I thought was so good because I've known plenty of people that have literally six, seven, eight thousand emails in their inbox. And I think, why in God's name 
would you do that to yourself? It's got, even if you, if you ignore them and don't ever plan to deal with them, it's got to be anxiety inducing on some sort of subconscious level that it's still there or it's some sort of twisted badge of honor. Right. <laughs> right. Well, they'll tell you they're all searchable. And when they tell me that I say, well, then archive them. If they're all searchable, archive them now. You know, if you're using any kind of a Gmail product, just archive them. Empty your email box right now, archive them. They're just as searchable in the archive as they are in the inbox. It searches the whole thing. So, but still they won't. They're like, but I might need one of them. I'm like, you don't need any of them probably. This has been really good. And I think again, especially for salespeople that are trying to get off to a hot start at the beginning of a new year and and part of the impetus for doing that or, or part of the the way that they're going to be able to do that is to be more personally productive and efficient with their time. And I think, uh, Matthew, you've given people a lot of really good insights that they can do and some very practical tips and ideas that can make people just work smarter. I'm glad. It sounds strange, but the amount of time I watch people waste truly pains me because I am keenly aware of how fleeting sometimes this life can be and how how I feel like people live their lives as if they're going to live forever and they're not. And so, you know, not wasting time, it will make you feel very good at the end of the day when you know you've spent your day doing all the things you needed to do to help that future self of yours. It's true. You feel so good at the end of a day where you know you've been productive and done your best and contributed to helping other people and all those things and not just muddled through a series of reactive, whatever it might be in that day. So um, for our listeners, you should check out Matthew's books, including there's, there's quite a few, but the two that are most relevant are called one is Someday is Today, 22 Simple Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life, as well as Story Worthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. And um, Matthew, before we started recording, I know we were talking about this, but for the listener, Matthew is also a tremendous expert in the art of storytelling, which is really relevant for salespeople. And uh, we're going to try to get you back in a few months. And I want to make sure that we spend some dedicated time and, and bring this to light because this has been a, a great discussion, but we could obviously use your perspectives on uh, improving the art of storytelling for salespeople. I'd love to come back. It's a topic I am deeply obsessed over. You can find Matthew on Twitter at Matthew Dix, as well as uh, on LinkedIn. His website is MatthewDix.com. Matthew, thank you so much again for being part of Mental Selling today. This has been really inspiring, I think, for salespeople, especially as they get off um, starting a new year and, and, and maybe a new role as well. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, hope you will join us again next time. Have a great day. You've been listening to Mental Selling, an Integrity Solutions podcast. Stay in touch with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player and following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please give us a rating, leave a comment, and share episodes you love. That helps us keep empowering sales and service leaders to master the mental side of selling. Until next time, let's go out and create amazing customer experiences.